chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Mason. I'm a member here at Christ Church Westchester. <clears throat> if you're looking for 1 Samuel 17 in the Pew Bible, it's going to be on page 239. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, uh, then please take that copy home with you this morning as our gift to you. This morning, we are going to be in the third of a series of sermons going through the life of David in the book of Samuel. We were introduced to David at his anointing at the beginning of the last chapter, chapter 16. And then we saw him summoned to play the harp skillfully in the palace of the king Saul when he was tormented by um, an evil spirit in an attempt to calm him down his restless heart. So in this third passage about David, we finally get a clearer glimpse into the kind of man that he is. Because so far, we've heard about David, right? We've gotten to hear about him, but we actually haven't heard him say anything. We haven't really seen him do anything either, except play the harp. So he's still a little bit of a mystery to us. In a sense, we've kind of read the prologue of David's story, but... 1 Samuel 17 is chapter 1, so to speak. So, with that said, let's read 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. I will read it for us. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah in Ephesdamon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze." And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. Who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into the battle, and the names of his three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. 
See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Then when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as David Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you reveal yourself to us in it. We thank you for the ways that you challenge us with it, that you correct us with it, that you instruct us with it. Lord, may you do all of those things this morning as we study your word. Would you soften our hearts? Would you open our eyes? Would your spirit move in us that we would understand more deeply what you have to say through your word and then as a result, love you more deeply? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I'm guessing you might have heard this before. This is one of the best-known passages in the Bible, partially, of course, because of its incredible content, but partially because the author of Samuel specifically crafted it that way. He crafted it to stand out from the rest of his book. It's the longest battle story of David's life. It contains the most quotations of any story in the book. It features an abundance of detail about numbers and weights and times and people. Verses 4 through 7 present the longest description of military equipment in the Old Testament. And verses 8 through 10 are the longest quotation in the whole book uttered by a foreigner. Now, those aren't simply fun little trivia facts about 1 Samuel 17 that I want you to take home. They show the deliberate care of the author in crafting a story that would be memorable that would immerse his readers and his hearers in the story in a way that they would never forget, that would stick in their minds. Unfortunately, this passage is just too long to walk through every single aspect of it with a degree of detail that I think we would all like to do. We could easily do three or four sermons on this passage alone. So I do encourage you this afternoon to go back, go home, read this passage again in light of some of the things that we're going to talk about today, meditate on it again, and continue mining the riches of God's Word. But what I want to do this morning is just give you a helpful tool, 
I think, for examining this passage and maybe some others like it, especially in the Old Testament. I want to look at the way that the writer juxtaposes David against a few other people in the story and how he uses these comparisons to teach us about the kind of man that David is and ultimately to point us to what the king of Israel should be like. We'll focus on three points, and they all kind of span the entirety of the passage, so we're just, we're just going to be jumping around a lot, unfortunately. We're going to start with the most obvious comparison that we have in this passage, which is point one, David as the anti-Goliath. So perhaps the most evocative part of this story is this giant of the Philistines, Goliath. He towers over this chapter, literally and figuratively. Though the rest of the Philistine army is there, they don't, they don't matter. They're not the point of this story. Goliath is center stage, and they're just the background players. But the question, as we have this vivid image in our minds of Goliath standing there challenging the Israelite army, is how did we get here? All we have at the beginning of this passage is, and the Philistines came out for war. How did we get here? Well, God's people and the Philistines go way back. And their relationship had a bit of a rocky start when their king, Abimelech, took Sarah to be his wife after Abraham lied about her being his sister. It's not a good way to start their relationship. And then it continued just as poorly when his son Isaac did the exact same thing. After the exodus, as God's people are entering the promised land, God tells Joshua in Joshua 13 that his people are to possess all the regions of the Philistines. Now, if you're familiar with Joshua, the uh, maybe kind word possess actually means conquer and destroy. So God tasked his people with wiping out the Philistines as they entered the promised land. But unsurprisingly, they did not do that. They had already conquered a fair amount of land and decided that was enough. So they left the Philistines alone and enjoyed the land that they had already conquered. And as a result, the Philistines have been a constant threat to the Israelites ever since. They're one of the recurring enemies that comes up time and time again in the book of Judges, going back and forth with God's people for control of the other. Earlier in 1 Samuel, Saul was actually on the precipice of wiping out the Philistines once and for all. But then if you read 1 Samuel chapter 14, Saul makes a rash and unwise vow that trips up himself, his army, his son, and allows the Philistines to escape and regroup to fight another day. So that's how we got here. The Philistines are threatening the very heart of Israel's land. They're only a couple miles from Saul's capital. This is a key battle for the Israelites to defend their homeland. And standing between the Israelites and victory is this monster of a man whom the Philistines have put forward as their champion to defeat anyone crazy enough to actually face him. Goliath is described in striking detail, starting in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze strung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. 
So your Bible, especially if you have a study Bible, you, you might have footnotes explaining this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page about what these measurements actually mean. A height of six cubits and a span would put Goliath at about nine feet, nine inches tall. The tallest man in modern history was an American named Robert Wadlow, who topped out at eight feet, 11 inches when he died in 1940. So Goliath was 10 inches taller than that. If you can imagine him walking at a basketball hoop, his head would almost hit the hoop. I don't know if that's a helpful comparison, but maybe for some of you. A coat of mail that he was wearing, measuring 5,000 shekels, would weigh in at 125 pounds. And his spearhead would be 15 pounds. So the combined weight of all of Goliath's armor and his weapons would probably be pushing 200 pounds in total. So clearly, not only was Goliath very tall, he was very strong. This is the armor of a warrior who does not need speed or agility because his strength always gets the job done. And then, on the other side, we have David, coming from humble origins out in the pasture, seemingly overlooked by many, including his own father, on the possibility of him being the next king. He's nobody's pick for a champion or even a future king. If we total the combined weight of his weapons and his armor, they're pretty close to zero pounds. He's also described multiple times in this passage as a youth, or a boy even, as Saul calls him at the end. Something that communicates not just his age, but also his inexperience with warfare. He is not a battle-hardened veteran. He's just a boy. But This brings up an important point as we read this passage in light of the book as a whole. Let's not forget what God said to Samuel at the beginning of the last chapter at David's anointing. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Goliath's physical stature, armor, weaponry, and shield bearer must have made him appear invincible. However, the reader has just been warned against paying undue attention to outward appearance. The detailed description of Goliath's external advantages here suggests that chapter 17 was intended in part to serve as an object lesson in the theology of the previous chapter. The question is, have we learned that lesson that God just taught Samuel? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Looking at the outward appearance, it's very clear who should win this battle. But beyond physical descriptions, we see some key differences between David and Goliath in their approach to this battle as well. Goliath is called a champion three times in this passage, meaning that this is probably not his first rodeo. He has won multiple contests like this in the past, similar to the one that he is offering now. And so he has great trust in his own ability, his own strength, his own skill, rightly so. It has paid off in the past. In verse 10, we see this on full display. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The word defy here doesn't necessarily capture exactly what he's trying to say. I think the word taunt is probably a better reading of it. He's taunting the Israelite army. And you can only taunt someone when you're coming from a position of strength, a position of believing that you are the superior force. He's taunting the Israelite army because he knows that if this is a contest of strength, it will only go one way. But David, on the other hand, also has confidence. But his confidence does not lie in his skill or his armor or his strength or his weapons. 
he is skilled. And he's probably fairly strong. He makes that clear in verse 34. He describes this to Saul. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. What David is describing in this passage is not sheer luck or happenstance in defeating these animals. He didn't say, I was facing off against a lion and then it fell off a cliff, so it was okay. You don't accidentally grab hold of a lion and kill it. He is describing something that requires skill and requires strength. But the important thing is that's not the reason why he believes he will triumph over Goliath. Verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David firmly believes that any success that he had in the past was completely the Lord's doing. And that any that comes in the future will be the same. We should ask ourselves this morning if we could say the same thing of us. How much of what we have or what we do or what we produce or the influence that we exert or the success that we've attained or the skills that we can demonstrate, do we actually believe came through our own effort? Through us just trying harder than other people? We often say that suffering truly believes or truly reveals what we believe about God. And that's true. That's definitely true. But success can also shine a light on some of the darker areas of our hearts in ways that we would not anticipate and would rather not admit. Often the same heart that seeks after God and cries out to God in the midst of adversity ignores him when it faces accomplishment. David serves as a great example for us in humbly acknowledging the Lord in our success as well as in our suffering. But in contrast to David, let's look again at Goliath. Besides his strength and his size, it seems like Goliath's third asset is his ability to trash talk. He starts in verse 10 and then assumedly has repeated it twice daily for 40 days. And then, again, in verse 43, he picks it right back up as David comes out to him. He says, And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. He views David's staff as a tool suitable for a dog, but laughable as a serious weapon. And then he threatens David with the most undignified of burials, feeding his flesh to the birds and the beasts, which would be a great disgrace in the Israelite culture. But crucially, Goliath has already sealed his fate before this battle begins, and we see that in verse 43. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. If we think back to David's ancestors the patriarchs of Israel in the book of Genesis, we should remember the words of the covenant that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. I don't appreciate the ESV rendering that word dishonors because it makes this point less clear, but most other English translations say, those who curse you I will curse meaning that God has promised 
to curse anyone who curses Abraham or his descendants. And it's based on that promise that David throws Goliath's words right back at him in verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David has no doubt that the Lord will give him victory, not because he trusts in his own ability, but because he trusts that the Lord is faithful to his promises. God has promised to do this. God will curse those who curse his people, and David is counting on it. He's banking on it in this instance. But he's actually looking back to an even older promise than the one God made to Abraham. We read this text earlier in the service. God puts a curse on Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, he's speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse creates a duality that we trace throughout the remainder of the Bible. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. This is the constant struggle. God's people versus those of the world, those following the devil, those who are trying to oppose God's people. Now it's a subtle detail that's lost in English, but I just want to point us to it so that we understand this background. In verse 5, Goliath's coat of mail is actually described in Hebrew like that of scales. Scales of armor cascading over one another. It's an effective armor, but it also reminds us, perhaps, of something else. Additionally, the man, uh, the, the god of the Philistines, Dagon, who we've encountered earlier in 1 Samuel, was represented as a half-man, half-snake. Do you see the picture that the author of Samuel is painting here? This contest, once again, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman going up against each other. And the Lord has told us already what will happen when these two meet. But notice that David also expands Goliath's original threat against him and takes it and applies it to all of the Philistines. Did you notice that? Goliath only threatened David. But when David throws it back at Goliath, he says, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to feed all of the Philistines to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. Because just as David is standing in the place of all of God's people, representing them on this battlefield, so Goliath is standing in for all of the Philistines. So the consequences of cursing God's people now fall on all of the Philistines, not just Goliath, on the head of every single man in that army. But in contrast to Goliath, David isn't really making threats or taunting them. He's just telling them the truth. He's just warning the Philistines of what the Lord has promised to do to anyone who curses his people. David believes God's word. He trusts that God will be faithful to his promise. That's where his confidence in this battle comes from. Unfortunately, he seems to be the only one in Israel's camp who does. Which brings us to our second point, David as the anti-Saul. Coming out of the previous two passages, the author of Samuel is clearly trying to position David as the anti-Saul. Saul came from a rich family. David had much more humble origins. Whereas Saul was clearly distinguished by his appearance, David was overlooked. 
Where Saul was a very poor keeper of his father's donkeys, David is a good shepherd. David is described as prudent in speech, while Saul's rash vow almost cost him the life of his own son, Jonathan. In some ways, they are a lot alike. They're both described as handsome, as as men of war, as brave men. But in other ways, I think David is meant to serve as a foil to Saul and to display to Israel and to us what the true king of Israel is supposed to be. Now, there's a detail that's kind of missing in this passage that requires us to read between the lines, but once you see it, it's painfully obvious. Whose job is it to fight Goliath? Whose job is it to answer the challenge of Israel's enemies against them? Let's look for some scriptural evidence to back this up, not just a supposition on this passage. When the people demand a king in 1 Samuel 8, they say, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and, crucially, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they said they wanted in a king. And then when Samuel anointed Saul in 1 Samuel 10, he says, You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Saul basically has one job as the king. This is his one responsibility that was affirmed by the people. It was affirmed by Samuel. And why was Saul picked as the king of Israel? Yes, he was handsome. It says that. But he was also a skilled warrior. And most importantly, he was a head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. Do you see the connection that's being drawn here? Saul is Israel's Goliath. He's their biggest, strongest, mightiest warrior. He's their insurance policy. Nobody can beat them if we have the biggest, strongest, mightiest warrior fighting for us. But guess what? He's not anymore. What happens when you show up to a battle and he's not the biggest anymore? He's not the strongest. Well, it turns out maybe there's more to being king than being the biggest and the strongest. And we see the ways that Saul fails to live up to his actual responsibilities, the stated purpose of his anointing. Goliath has been taunting Israel's army twice a day for 40 days now. Saul has had a chance to step up, and he hasn't. He hasn't done it. He's supposed to be the deliverer of Israel, but he's not. Our passage tells us that he is just as scared as everyone else. David, on the other hand, is not the biggest or the strongest, but he is acting much more like Israel's king than the man who sits on the throne. David was confident that God had equipped him for this fight, and he goes faithfully where God is leading him, even if he is seemingly the least likely person on that battlefield to do it. I think one application we can draw from this is that having a title or a position is not a prerequisite for serving meaningfully in the church. Having the title of elder or deacon or staff doesn't mean that those people are the only ones who are allowed to serve. Every single one of us who are members of this church have been tasked with using our gifts for the benefit of those around us. That's true for the people who've been here over 10 years, and that's true for the people who were voted into membership two weeks ago. It's true for those who are well-educated and hold lots of biblical knowledge, and those with little to speak of. 
It's true for the young and the old, for the single and the married, for the new believer and the seasoned saint. And the story tells us that perhaps those we might discount in our human understanding are actually uniquely qualified and equipped to do the work that God is calling his church to do. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and slay a figurative giant on behalf of Christ Church Westchester. But I am saying that every single member of this church is called and qualified to serve those around him, around you, whether you have a title or not, whether you have a position or not. If you see someone you don't know sitting alone on a Sunday morning, go sit with them, talk to them, make them feel welcome. If you know that someone is going through a difficult time at the moment, you can make them dinner. Bring over dinner, bring it over, sit with them, talk with them. Maybe they need someone to talk to or just to listen, to pray with them. The only title that you need is Christian. And the only qualification you need is a willingness to help. We can and should do real spiritual good to one another in the life of this church, regardless of our title, position, experience, age, or even our own confidence in our abilities. We do it out of love for one another. We do it out of love for the Lord Christ, by whose blood we have been brought together as brothers and sisters in this local body. Which reminds me of another key difference that we see between Saul and David that I actually alluded to earlier. What's their motivation for facing Goliath? There is no prize appealing enough or incentive enticing enough for Saul to enter this battle. There's nothing that can get him to go and fight Goliath. So instead, he tries to offer an appealing prize to some random Israelite who's willing to take it up, some Jewish, uh, Jewish soldier who's okay with facing almost certain death. Verse 25, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. This isn't a great plan on Saul's part, trying to promise earthly riches to someone who will die. It's not very appealing. But David is not interested in that. His concern in verse 26 lies in taking away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 45, he tells Goliath that he comes in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And then in verse 46, he promises that he will defeat him, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see that David's reason for boasting about the past is the same as his motivation for acting in the future. It's the glory of God. David wants to act in such a way that the Lord is magnified and glorified. And then he gives full credit back to the Lord for what he does through him. In verse 46, that's what he says. He desires that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Let's think about this for a moment. David's desire is that his actions would proclaim the supremacy of the Lord. So what do our actions say? What do people learn about us and about our God from the way that we live our lives day to day? Today, I am going to get impatient with my wife and yell at her. 
so that she knows that my time and my desires are more important than hers. Next week, I will gossip about my coworkers so that they know that I do not value their friendship and would much rather throw them under the bus to boost my office credibility. Is that how we think about these things? Of course not. We're not thinking through them that way, but that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what we're communicating with our actions. With every action we take, we are teaching others what to think of us. We are displaying what we actually believe. But beyond that, for those of us who are Christians here this morning, we are teaching people about the God that we serve with our actions. Living a life of constant fear and worry tells the people around us that our God cannot be trusted. Chasing relentlessly after worldly success and financial gain communicates belief in a God who apparently values those things above anything else and calls us to do the same. Now, none of us do this perfectly, of course. I'm not trying to heap uh, condemnation and burden anyone who is seeking to put these things to death in our lives, but we need to be aware of what we are teaching people, not just with our words, but with our actions. David serves as a great model for us, as his desire is for all of his actions to make the Lord known. May we be faithful to follow him in that example, to do that in our own lives. But before we move on to our final point, I think there's one small thing that's symbolic of the difference between David and Saul, and that foreshadows the rest of their relationship moving forward. We shouldn't miss the significance of Saul trying to clothe David in his own armor and David taking it off. David will not be the king that Saul is. David will not fight his battles the way that Saul does. David will not walk in the way of Saul or follow in his footsteps. He will be a different king. He will be the king that God desires for his people, one that points forward to their true eternal king. And that brings us to our third point, David as the anti-hero. Now, I'm willing to bet that maybe some of you took a look at your program or took a look at the slide and said, oh, that's a shame. Dan doesn't know how to spell. This is intentional, and we will, we will talk about it. I would be willing to bet, like I said earlier, that most of you have heard this passage taught at some point or another. It's one of the most famous Bible passages in our society. If you ask anyone on the street, what's the story of David and Goliath? Chances are they could give you at least a rough sketch of the plot of this chapter. And many have read this story over the years as the archetypal example of God empowering Christians to defeat whatever and whoever stands in their way. You've probably heard this. We are David, and our besetting sins or sickness or doubt or depression or any insert bad thing here is Goliath. And if we have enough faith, then we can conquer any of the giants that stand in our way. That's not the point of this passage. That's not actually a biblical idea. So I want to push back on that this morning. On the surface, it seems like David is the hero of this story, and at one level that is true. He is the one who kills Goliath. But let us not forget, David ascribes all of the heroics in this passage to God himself, and we would be wise to follow his example and not place him at the center of this story, but place God as the true hero of this story. 
But even humanly speaking, I don't think David is actually the hero of this story. I think he is the anti-hero. Not anti-hero. He's not the Jack Sparrow of 1 Samuel. He's the anti-hero, as in the hero that comes before. The pre-hero. His job is to point forward to the true hero of the grand story of Scripture. Let's take a step back. Let's, let's go over the details of this story again. God's people are facing an existential threat of their own making. The enemy is seeking to make them slaves, an enemy that they're facing because they refuse to listen to God's commands in the first place. This enemy is far stronger than they are. So all they can do is stand helplessly on the sideline and watch and hope and pray that someone comes to do for them, for them what they cannot do for themselves. But then comes a shepherd from Bethlehem on a mission from his father. He is actually a king, but he's not reigning yet. And even though this is not his fight, he steps up anyway, facing rejection and misunderstanding by his own family. He goes into battle in a very different way than everyone anticipates, and he crushes the head of his enemy decisively. He triumphs on behalf of God's people, allowing them to chase down and defeat the last vestiges of this once fearful enemy. Now let me ask you, does it sound like that story is actually about David, let alone about us? No. And praise God that it's not, because it would have turned out very differently if it depended on us. Brothers and sisters, the story of David and Goliath is such a powerful story for Christians, not because it means that we can slay our giants, but because Jesus already has. Do you know what that means for you? It means that you don't have to bear the weight of trying to save yourself, because one, you can't, and two, Jesus has already done it. Through the work that he has done on behalf of his people, the real hero of this story brought victory over sin and death once and for all, for all who would turn from their sin and place their faith in him for salvation. If you have questions about what that means, please come talk to me. I'll be at the back of the room at the end of this service or talk to Pastor Will, who is up here earlier, or any member of this church. There is life for you in Christ if you would come to him this morning. Coming face to face with the reality of our sin and its consequences should have us running scared like the Israelites at the beginning of this passage before the battle. But truly understanding the victory that Christ has won over sin and death should give us confidence to put to death what remains that is sinful in us, just like the Israelites after the battle. These are the same people. They're running scared one minute, and then they're running after the Philistines the next. What happened? The victory has been won. That's what happened. That makes all the difference. The enemy that once looked invincible is now reduced to nothing. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you this morning to examine this story anew and really consider what Christ has done for you. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus bore the weight of God's curse so that we wouldn't have to, even though we deserved it just as much as Goliath did, just as much as the Philistines did. This is our great champion who died for us even though we're on the other side of the battle. We're standing with the enemy and he dies for us to bring us to himself. This is our great champion. 
But let us not forget, this is also our great king. David was showing God's people how a true king should be. And in doing that, he reminds us of the glorious attributes of our great heavenly king. Our king, when he came, was not exalted on a throne, but lifted up on a cross. His cry of victory was not a shout of triumph, but a cry of agony that it is finished. The final triumph did not come with Goliath falling face down before David, but will come with all creatures in heaven and on earth and under the earth, falling face down and declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He didn't just win a single victory and doesn't sit on a throne for a couple years. He reigns forevermore. This is our hero. This is our king. This is our God. Let's pray. Lord, what a glorious truth. What a glorious truth that you have won the victory that we could never win. Lord, may we not fall into the pattern of trying to think that we can do it on our own or that we have to do it on our own. But Lord, let us, like David, put all of our confidence in you. Put all of our trust in you because you are faithful to your promises. Lord, may everything that we say and do proclaim your glory, that others may see and know that you are God. Lord, may we not feel burdened by the need to win the victory ourselves when you have already won it. Would you encourage us? Would you remind us of that truth today? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?